Come, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this living hope that you have given us. We're so thankful that you love us and you care about us so much that you sent your one and only son to save us. We know that that is heavy when we think about it. We know that all of heaven paid attention that day when he was on that cross. God, we would, we would pray that you'd help us to do the same, to take notice of what your son has done for us. And we celebrate that today. Most of the folks in this room today are believers, and we are so thankful for that. We pray for those that may be here today going, what is this all about? Why are they celebrating like this? Why are they worshiping this way? God, I would pray that you would draw them in. Show them the truth. Show them who your son is. Open their eyes to that. God, I would pray this morning as we look into your word, I pray that you would help us uh, to, to listen to what you want us to hear. We know that we are not perfect yet. We are not in our final resting place yet. We are not home yet. Your word says that we are aliens here wandering around until you call us home. So I pray that you'd help us, help us to grow today. Uh, we pray that you'd help Pastor Justin to uh, uh, be clear in his thinking as he brings your word, give him energy. So we pray that would happen. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us. And we pray these things now in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. As we were singing that, uh, that last song, I was reminded, I was listening to a preacher, John uh, Phillips, a short while ago, preaching on the book of Jonah. And he had grown up during the era of the Scottish Revival, and he was talking about uh, times, and I think I've shared this uh, story with you, but uh, when he was a kid where he said um, the, the men that were working down in the coal mines were so vile and so... Uh, chronically uh, irritable, uh, that the pit ponies down there did not know how to move forward uh, unless they were cursed at and struck. And he said uh, one of the signs that revival had hit that area was that they had to retrain all the pit ponies because the men became so nice they wouldn't strike and curse. And he said that as they were going, he says, uh, instead of streaming out of bars from the night before, instead of coming out in all of the debauchery that they had been living in, they were coming out of their homes where they had blessed their families, and one man would join another and another and another, and on their way to work, they would begin singing the songs of Zion. They would begin singing hymns and singing praises, and during that Scottish revival, over 100,000 people would give their lives to Christ, would be saved, and the majority of those were saved by the throng of people who were so changed by their interaction with Christ. They were singing in the hills and valleys. People would respond to Christ. They would just run to the church to report it. But it was with songs that filled their heart. I hope you know that we spend some time as we're preparing on a Sunday morning so that the songs that are sung are a reflection of truth that we could sing in the highways. And I pray that sometime uh, during the week, not just on Sundays, you catch yourself singing songs like we just sang. Jesus Christ is our living hope, amen? And we ought to rejoice when we see people around us praising God and focused on Him as a result of that truth. We are a privileged people. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, this is the final uh, message in our series we've been doing, Rejection from Every Angle. As we're walking through the book of Luke, we see these moments unfold that lead Christ right to the cross where he dies for you and I. 
As we start that, there's a couple of moments. Uh, I don't know if I was just uh, reviewing in my mind um, some positive presidential moments. Uh, hoping for one good political thought, I was going back to yesteryear, and I was reminded, and you don't unpack that on your own time, if you will, but uh, back before the days of tweeting, there actually were some moments where we as a nation could look at what was going on and say, man, that moved us forward. I, I have a picture here of Clinton signing uh, a bill into law, uh, Megan's Law, with families there. Uh, you see uh, that famous father of Adam, the, song, the story that I grew up with, Adam, where are you, where he lost his son, to actually be able to report when somebody who could negatively influence your family might be living right next door. Megan's Law was signed into law. 1988, Matsunaga had, uh, with President Reagan, been pushing forward a bill for Japanese reparation, and I remember our nation working through all of these issues. What do we do in this scenario? And the weeping that was actually on the Senate floor and uh, before the House, as people would come together, they were wrangling over these things, but when it finally was pushed through, the weeping that finally we could look at a group of people and say, how we treated you was wrong. Boy, repentance is a good thing, isn't it? Or George Bush signing the Americans with Disabilities Act. And you will notice something. In every single season with these presidents, in every single season when something goes from an idea to a bill and then gets signed into a law, the president will call somebody who is a representative of the people that that was meant to impact. He will call those people to be at that signing so that those who most closely represent the kind of people that will be impacted by that law will be there as he signs it into law. And quite often he will hand them something of significance, a pen uh, that he signed that with. If he signs it with multiple pens to hand to multiple people, it intends that it's going to impact a greater number of lives outside of that office after that day. He will call those people to his side so that people will be able to see these are the kind of people that this will impact. We see the exact same thing happening in Luke chapter 23. What we had heard in the Old Testament as in essence a bill that there's going to be someday a Messiah, a Savior, somebody who's going to take all of these pictures of the Old Testament and turn them into truth, into reality, where instead of laying our hands on animals, here is the one, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world. And in that moment, he puts it into spiritual law. There is no other name under heaven whereby anyone can be saved except through Jesus Christ. And on the right and the left of him are the kind of people that will be impacted by this. Thieves. But we are told that those two people don't just represent thieves or people who have stolen or people who have lived in a debauched life. It represents every single person that's in this room. You and I are represented by the two people that are on either side of Christ on the cross. And we see two different responses to the cross in that moment. So it's to that moment that I invite you to read. Let's stand and look at Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. It says, And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals one on the right and the other on the left. 
But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they were casting lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him and saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? Now there was an inscription even put over above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him also, saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, he said, Do you not even fear God? You're under the same sentence of condemnation. We indeed are suffering justly, for we received what we deserved for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, the thief, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you believe that actually happened? You may be seated. Father, as we consider this passage, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would tune our hearts to listen to you, that we would be impacted by the words that are here, that we would see this true event that actually happened, but we would also see why it was written down, that it was intended for us, that we would see ourselves on the right and the left of Christ at the cross, that we would see ourselves as those condemned, deserving of death, and in need of a Savior. Father, I pray that we would see not only what happened, but how Jesus responded to the one who repented, even in that most dire time. Impact us this morning and cause us to be different during the course of this week. As a result, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In your notes, um, James Stewart writes this. Now, one of the most notable characteristics of the apostolic preaching was this. It really did convey to men the wonder of the experience of being forgiven. You must have noticed the immensely significant fact that the most lyrical outbursts of sudden poetry and doxology, both in the Old Testament and in the New, are those that celebrate forgiveness. Who is a God like unto thee, cries Micah, who is challenging in the name of Jehovah of Israel all of the imperial pomps of the terrible deities of the nations? Who is a God like unto thee? But the extraordinary significance of the prophetic jubilation lies in words which immediately follow. They give the characteristic action of Israel's God within history among men. He doesn't say, who is a God like unto thee that rides on the wings of the wind and treads on the high places of the earth? He doesn't say, who is a God like unto thee that confounds the devices of the sinner and holds the wicked in derision? But he says this, who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity, that passes by transgression, that retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This, declare the men of Scripture unanimously, is his crowning glory. This is the final amazement. That Jesus Christ would forgive any of us is beyond amazing. Amen? We don't deserve it. We shouldn't receive it. 
The entire world could be easily just flushed from history and God would have been able to wash his hands and say, man, that was appropriate. But that is not how he handled us. We see in this moment that Christ is on the cross and he's dying for us. Now, already in this section, we've watched people who should have been in amazement, who should have sensed that near forgiveness, who should have known better. Each one of these groups has systematically rejected him. Judas, at the very beginning, somebody who walked with him for three and a half years, has been plotting his demise and finally sees an opportunity. He sells him for what would have been the price of a slave, a prophetic statement over his life. He ends up killing himself soon after these events, but Judas rejected him. But then Peter, his most loyal defendant there among the 12, the leader that would jump first whenever Jesus would say, let's go be about this, the one that was most eager to serve him, also denied him three times. The religious, those who had studied, in fact, it was their word that told Herod, Oh, if you're looking for the Messiah, then you better look in Bethlehem. This is the group that knew the scriptures and knew where the Messiah would land and knew the characteristics of the Messiah. And they are looking at their Messiah and they say, we don't want him. Throw him away. And then the politicians, they were just trying to keep the peace. In a world that will not listen to Christ, this is an increasingly hard thing to do. Amen? How do you keep the peace when people want their own way? when they can vote their own way, when they desire their own things, when all they have to do is shake their fist and the leaders get nervous. Here they were shaking the fist and even though the leaders proclaimed multiple times, he did nothing wrong. There's nothing that he should stand guilty for. Yet they sent him to the cross to appease the masses. The politicians rejected him as well. Christ in this first moment goes to the cross, and with words of warning, with a broken heart, he looks at those that were actually weeping for him, and he says, don't weep for me right now. This is necessary. But weep for yourselves in the near future and in the far distant future. There are going to be moments where you need to listen to my words. Do not reject my words. Follow what I say. Things are only going to get worse. Now we find ourselves at this moment, the place called the skull, and there is Christ on the cross with thieves framing him, one to the right and one to the left. And all of this dialogue happens after rejection upon rejection upon rejection has landed on Christ, and he is there in this moment. What is he going to say? As we begin to read this story, if you're reading it for the very first time and and you've not heard it since you were a kid and you haven't heard it in every Sunday school discussion, uh, it hasn't been a part of the preaching that you've listened to. If you're hearing it for the very first time, these moments cause you to lean in. What is he going to say? What would God do if he was being killed by the people he came to save? We can feel ourselves scoot forward. We can feel in our hearts leaning in. How is it that he's going to act? What are his actions? What would any of us have done? We would have acted completely opposite of Jesus. Because Jesus starts it off with forgiveness. There's three things I want us to look at this morning. And I want us to go quickly because I want us to camp on the final thought. But I want us to look at these three things. Jesus had the right to save Jesus has the will to save, and Jesus wants you to be saved. That seems simple, doesn't it? But let's unpack it. Let's start with this. Jesus has the right to save. It says here, 
But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Does he even have the right to say that? And they cast lots, dividing his garments. Remember that. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him, coming up to him, offering sour wine. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There are seven sayings from the cross that are recorded in the scriptures between the four different gospel accounts. Seven different sayings that Jesus said in this moment after he had been nailed to that cross for you and I. The first one we find here, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. The second one also in Luke, today you will be with me in paradise. The third one, John chapter 19 where he says, woman, behold your son. And he's looking at his mom and saying to John, will you take care of her? He's caring for his mother even as he's dying on the cross. That's the right heart of a godly individual. The fourth one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Matthew 27? John 19, he says, I thirst. John 19 again, he proclaims, it is finished, to telestai. The entire balance has been settled. And finally, Luke chapter 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, by his will, not because of the force of the issue, he gives up his spirit. He had accomplished the task, and it was done. Now, the most complicated of these statements for me, always throughout the years, was that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even this morning, when we began to read this passage, I said, if you would open up with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 33, and you have to ask yourself, when was the first time they put those numbers in there? It's fairly convenient for us to be able to look at a passage. Do you know that if you go back to those old manuscripts, you will not find in them page numbers. You won't find chapter headings. That was put in much later. And the reason is that uh, not only people had stopped memorizing Scripture, but they found out that when you brought somebody to Christ that hadn't lived in that area and hadn't been around Scripture or a part of the synagogue, they did not know how to find their way in a Bible. Anybody still have trouble with that today? Yes, all right, just a few honest people raised their hands, but all of us, right? I can remember Al Mohler, the president of a seminary, And he sat down one time and he said that the guy that he most revered in preaching sat down next to him and they were at a Bible conference. He says, I was a young man, first year seminary student. I sit down there and uh, the guy says where to turn and I didn't fully hear him. I was in awe of my mentor. And so I just began flipping around in my Bible back and forth to show that I knew what a Bible was, he said. (laughs) I'm flipping back and forth and... uh, Uh, The the actual um, statement had come from the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, and he's flipping all around looking for it, and he goes, I believe you're going to find that in the, you know, this direction. And he leans over and helps him find it. He goes, I couldn't tell him that I worshiped the guy. I couldn't tell him he was my favorite. Here he was, a guy that right now is on the radio and is one of the most foremost voices for Christianity in the United States. He couldn't find his way. Why? It is tough sometimes to find it. Somebody helped us out by putting chapter headings, by putting verses in there. But you know they didn't used to do that. How they would find their way in the scripture is somebody would shout out the first line of a passage. And in your mind, if you'd been at the synagogue, you would consistently memorize the scriptures. You would begin to unpack it. Now we do this still even if we're singing a song, all right? Mary had a little lamb. Her, yeah, fleece was white as snow. You guys already know the next phrase. 
Psalm chapter 22. Can you imagine that Christ is on the cross and this scene is unfolding in front of you? Psalm 22, the very first line of that psalm is this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I, in other words, am going to have to go all the way through the pain that is in front of me. What does he say? Verse 6, but I'm a worm of a man reproached by men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? Those are the exact words of the people as Christ would shout out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words had been uttered loud enough for everyone to tell Luke, man, it was everywhere. Look at verse 14, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You're laying me down in the dust of death, for the dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierce my hands and my feet, I can count my bones, which by the way is possible after you've been flayed open by a Roman whip. They look and they stare. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Imagine having somebody shout out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just like Mary had a little lamb, your mind goes back to synagogue school and you finish the story and you see the scene. Can you as a religious leader not come under conviction at that moment? Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. We didn't want him, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was actually pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus had the right to forgive. He had the right to save. Isn't that profound? Here in this moment, he's perfectly fulfilling scripture, and it would have been shocking. Even the leaders testify. As they're speaking, it says that the people stood by looking at, and the rulers are sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. Now, they are actually quoting scripture accidentally. It's coming out of the outflow of their heart. This is what they've been studying the entire time. They use scriptural phrases to condemn this man, but all of a sudden, when they realize what they were saying, later on, Peter would preach And hundreds of them would come streaming forward and say, we knew at that moment that something was up. They quoted the very scripture that should have convicted their hearts. The scriptures testify he has the right to save. The leaders testified. Man, this is the guy, even though they did it accidentally, but even the world testifies. Look what it says here. Now, there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. That is nailed over him. Now, in other places we hear that they had actually approached, the leaders had gone to him and say, well, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, well, I've written what I've written. That stays. You guys put me in a hard place. You're going to be stuck with this moniker. There's your king. But unintentionally, they had actually proclaimed the truth to everybody else, though no one around was trusting it. 
you know that the world still testifies without meaning to? We have a picture of uh, at the Sydney Olympics, and I've used this illustration before. At the Sydney Olympics, as all the world is gathered to this place, the word eternity becomes emblazoned across this bridge. Remember, there was a man that had been stuck in homelessness for almost 40 years. Uh, and his author was going around that city when he comes to Christ and he gets saved and his life is transformed. He began to scrawl eternity all over the streets and on the walls throughout Sydney. And, and in fact, when somebody asked him, why in the world would you go and write in such beautiful cursive eternity, that word all over the city, and, and he shouted it out to him. He said, oh, eternity, eternity, that that word was emblazoned across the, the top of our city that men would consider where they are going to spend the rest of eternity, and turn to Christ. Years later, that word eternity still written in every single corner of Sydney when they thought it was time to welcome the world there. They said, hey, one of the things we're known for is this word. And as a part of their opening scene at the Olympics, they emblazon eternity across that. Now, they write eternity over there. And it feels like a deep moment to the world. But do you believe that all the rest of the world at that moment was bowing their knee to Christ? No, here, a bunch of leaders emblazon that across the top while the world goes on and lives the way it lives. Or consider for a moment Omaha Beach. Here we have, as this assault is necessary, and it's the only way to turn the tides of a, of a war, this uh, horrendous loss of life that is there. And in the American cemetery, you can see still up there uh, crosses that are laid out there. As all the waves are washing onto the beach, wave after wave of man would come up there and eventually waves of bodies of those who had given their life in order to give us freedom. So they're going to memorialize their lives. They put a cross for every life there in this field. But do you believe for a moment that every single person bows the knee as a result? No, here we have a memorial that's an appropriate one and should bring us to right thinking. But the world doesn't change. Consider for a moment the money that many of you maybe even brought in this morning. What does it say across the top? In God we trust. But do you know that when it comes to an election or it comes to our politics or it comes to our day-to-day -day lives that we quite often vote for our comfort and vote for what will put money in our pocket rather than vote for what God cares about most? Do you, are you aware of that? Now this is hard. This is going to cause a discussion after church. I'm aware of that. All right? But we need to understand that God is less concerned about your comfort and less concerned about your safety than he is concerned about your soul. And we quite often vote because of what we can get rather than who God is. Or how about this final scene? Statue Christ for the Nations. Down in Brazil, but once again, if you were to go to some major events that happen on the beaches that are underneath the arm span of Christ in that scene, you will find people not living for Christ, but living for this world. Amen? The world still proclaims him without changing one iota their heart. And you and I are like them. Don't put this on the world as if somehow we're not a part of it. We sit in judgment of ourselves. Christ had the right to save, and we've ignored it the entire time. But the second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus has the will to save. It's not just that he has the right but he has the will, the desire. Listen to him in verse 34, where we see his heart was broken for those who nailed him to the cross. 
It says, but Jesus was saying, uh, by the way, that, that is a repetitive statement. So he was saying over and over and over and over, Father, forgive them. There's another nail. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's a mocker. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's another person that's sneering or trying to give him sour wine to dampen it so that his pain would be prolonged and not taken away. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Over and over and over again, Christ is looking at this crowd and saying, this is just part of the process, Father. Don't hold that to their account. His heart was broken for those who were nailing him to the cross, not understanding what it was that they were doing. But also notice that he took time to comfort the thief that's on the cross. Here's two criminals on the either side as they're watching this scene unpack. And there's a guy that is definitely going to die, and he thinks now's a good time to be a crowd follower. All right? Yeah, save yourself and us. Like somehow the crowd's going to side with him and find out that he's a good guy after all. He's probably stolen from them all. He's probably up there on that cross because he's killed them. He's done some flagrant offense that Rome says it's not just worthy of death. It's worthy of a visible death. We want everyone to be afraid of living a life like yours. And now he's going to be a crowd pleaser? Why don't you save us, Jesus? He's just angry. The bitterness is flowing out of him now that he has these wounds. But the other one stops and says, don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence of condemnation. We're suffering justly. He has done nothing. And he says, Jesus, once again, he was saying over and over again, Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come in your kingdom? Will you remember me? Please remember me. And Jesus stops at that moment and says in the final verse of our passage this morning, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. He says, Son, you bank on this. You will see me today on the other side. He took time to comfort him. Now think of all the things that Christ could have said. You know, he, he could have looked at him and just said, Son, I'm really busy right now. <clears throat> this is a very inconvenient moment. Have you ever just been in a hurry and your kids are asking for something? How did that go? Right? They're begging, they're begging, they're saying, they're saying, please, 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 please. And with kindness in his heart, he says no. 2016, a gal, a 911 operator, was actually uh, arrested uh, because they'd been doing a review of the calls that were coming in into a place in, in uh, Houston. And this is something that 911 operators are consistently put under. They're asked how, how do they respond on their calls. And they found that there were thousands of calls that had come into this Houston dispatch area. And, and they were under 20 seconds. And they said, well, how is it possible to help people in under 20 seconds? And they found this one gal that consistently would just hang up on people. And at one time, there's actually a... Uh, a, a, a guy that has been shot, there is uh, six different assailants that are in there. There's been multiple shots, people that were down, and a guy that's hiding in the back room calls and says, we need help. There's people that have been wounded. There's multiple, and, and he's, at, uh, he's concerned for his life. He had heard the shots. He knew that the guys were near, but he wanted help to come, and, and she hung up. He calls again, accidentally gets her one more time. She says, this is crazy, hangs up on him. He calls back again, and as he is sharing this stuff, she says, there ain't nobody that's got time for this. Hangs up on him. Finally, he calls and gets somebody else, and they get somebody there, and the man that was shot had died. They were unable to find those men that had done the shooting. 
A second time as they were reviewing those calls, there was a guy that was calling saying that there were two men that were racing down the freeway and they were driving so fast that it had caused multiple accidents. There were people on either side that were in pain. Could you please send help? Mid-sentence, the first time that he calls, she cuts him off. The second time she says, this is ridiculous. Ultimately, they would review thousands of calls, not 10, not 50, not 100, not just 1,000, thousands with an S of calls where people in need had been hung up on because it was inconvenient for this one gal. There is never an inconvenient time for God. Amen? Now, we would say, well, she is different. Do you know that they actually have a division of people that check on 911 operators because it didn't just happen once? Our nature is to be irritated with other people's problems because we got problems of our own. Christ, in this moment, is being crucified for you and I, the weightiest moment in all of history. And what does he do? He turns to this man and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He took time. In fact, Peter says that he, in fact, took your place on the cross. First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He's quoting Isaiah 53. Christ took your place, all those sins on his body on the cross. He took your place. He has the right to save, he has the will to save, but also we want you to see that Jesus wants to save you. I want you to see that faith is always rewarded. Look at the process for this repentant criminal. It says that the criminals were hanging there, one on one side, one on the other. Hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. And the other one goes through a process. Notice what he does. Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We are suffering justly. There's repentance. Hey, I didn't believe it before I got busted, but now I understand. I am here for all the right reasons. He sees himself rightly. Secondly, listen to his confession. For we're receiving what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. He sees himself rightly, he sees Jesus rightly, and then he turns to Jesus in faith. Not looking at the circumstances, not looking at the outcome. He turns to Jesus in faith and he says, remember me. It doesn't matter that we're here on the cross. It's clear that you are God. There's something bigger that's happening here. And faith will always drive you to the right conclusions. Faith is always rewarded in every single season. He repents, he confesses, he believes Get this, against all things, he believes in the soon return of Christ. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you know what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Faith is rewarded. I, I want you to know something else that is very important, and especially in our world and in a day of prosperity preachers. Jesus promises eternal life, but you do not always get this life. Do you know that? This man would die as a natural consequence to the actions that he had been participating in. It turns out, now this is going to be a shocker to you in the room, that so far life has basically been 100% terminal. Did you know that? You and I have a due date or a past due date. 
there's a moment in which we will leave this earth. Now, there may be some great stories here or there about how we were near at one moment, but we're drawn back at the last second. But there is for every single one of us an appointment where we will cross over. As the old timers used to say, we will cross the river and head for the celestial city. At that moment, we're going to have to look into the eyes of the one, Hebrews says, to whom we have to pay an account. We'll give an account for our lives. He promises eternal life. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. By the way, that word is used 22 times in the book of Genesis to describe the Garden of Eden. And it's describing the Garden of Eden in those moments where God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day, describing all the beauties of his creation to him. 22 different times he says, hey, come along with me. Let me explore all of this world with you. That is God's intention for you and I for the rest of eternity. He's taking us to a place where all those things are made new. The promise in Scripture, especially for the believer, is that wherever Christ is, there we will be. To be absent from the body is present from, with the Lord. He promises eternal life. But I also want you to see that it's never too late to come to Jesus. You're not too far gone. You haven't done too much. It's not um, ever a moment where you say, this is too late. In a book called The Echoes of Flanders, Dr. War talks about a soldier who had run away from home. And he had gone from bad to worse. In fact, uh, as he went away from home, he was running away from home, and he wanted to just live out his life. Uh, he joined the army. He became a part of the war. And during that season of the world wars, both first and second, uh, there was a lot of debauchery to be had. He joins the army. He gets far away from home. He begins to live the most wicked of lifestyle. In fact, among all of those men who were living according to their own way, he was considered more debauched than all of them. Every single one of them looked at his life and said, he's a complete wreck. They had to separate him from all of the other guys that were living a wayward life. He had set the bar for how low that you could go until finally an officer said as a last-ditch effort, you know what, you're going to come and be my slave. You're going to be my representative. And at first he had him just washing his boots and eventually he had him serving alongside him. And that guy went from the lowest of the low to beginning to act according to his station. It was a transformative moment. So much so that one day when they were going out in the middle of a firefight when all of the bullets are flying and it was evident uh, that the one who had brought him from that low place to a place of prominence was about to be killed, he throws himself in harm's way takes the place of the officer who had actually lifted him up, and he is on a stretcher. And the men around him, these men who had said, man, he is too painful to be around, too wicked for me to have as a part of my life, these men surrounded him, and they're on the stretcher, and they could hear him as he was coughing out the final words as his life is leaving him. He's lived a debauched life, separated from his family, but he remembers a prayer that his mom would pray over him as he would go to sleep when he was a kid. And he began to pray it in that moment. The day is done, O oh God the Son. Look down upon their, your little one. O oh light of light, keep me this night and shed around thy presence bright. It said that the soldiers at that moment looked on the scared face of the man whom no one loved, and there was a light like the radiance of heaven, war says. The words are trailing off in the silence. He's now just choking out in his final gasps, these statements, 
I need not fear if you are near. You're the Savior, kind and dear. So happily and peacefully I lay down to rest in thee. And he died. The pastor who had recorded these words said, and in that moment I have no doubt that because of the thief on the cross ability to hear from Christ in that moment that he was saved. And he was saved and he was set free that moment from a life that was wrecked, ruined, and impossible to restore here, but God restored him fully there. Do you believe that God can save you even at the last? I can remember a man that had been in our church and he had come at the end of the season of life. His family was gone. His wife was gone. He had no kids. And he began to come just to a series out of uh, curiosity. In fact, he'd been a lawyer, and he gave a classic lawyer joke. I'm like, man, I didn't know that you loved the word so much. And he says, actually, I'm just looking for a loophole. <laughs> he had a great sense of humor, but he had not turned his life over to Christ. And I can remember all of a sudden, in a moment, as emphysema had caught up with his body, there was no one there, and my, name, uh, my phone number had been written into a flyleaf on some material that we had next to his bedside, so the hospital calls, and I go in there, and the hospice nurse looks at me, and they said, sometimes people have trouble crossing over when there's stuff here that they can't let go of. And I can remember going into that place, and the guy is gasping, and his eyes are big, and he's clutching at the air, and he's looking at me as the pastor, and I come into the room, and there's a recognition in that moment. And I'm looking at that man and I'm saying, you just need to believe what you've been hearing all this time. There's no way to come back. There's nothing else that they can do. Trust Christ and let go. He died for you. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. Trust him and let go. Trust him and let go. And in those moments, there was a sudden recognition. And peace settles over his body and he crosses over. Now, I heard no words, but this is the confidence that I have. If you will put your faith in Christ, even as the light is going out, he'll save you. But the tragedy of our human existence is that so many of us wait until that last moment to actually live a dedicated life. So many of us leave our families worried right up until the very last second, and we do not turn to Christ until it's seeming to others that it's too late. Out of all the four Gospels, only one returns the, or tells us of the thief that had turned to Christ. All the rest say the others were sneering. Luke is the one who said, upon further account, there are some who said that in those hours of darkness, the thief turned his life to Christ. But don't leave the people around you picking for a story or hoping for a moment where they say, well, finally, he quit resisting and yielded. It's possible that you're here today and you know that you're supposed to give your life to Christ. Today, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. I want you to just say, no longer, Lord, I'll get to you tomorrow. Say to him, today is the day of salvation. I want to give my life to you and believe. But also, if you're a believer that's been living in Laodicea and you've had a lukewarm life and you've just barely been getting by and you've been resisting the Spirit's work in your life this entire time, stop it. Don't leave people around you wondering if that commitment that you say you made so many years ago is actually real. Give your life to Christ today. Amen? And it's with that that I leave you. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you now to help us go from reading a story and a moment and a true event in the life of Christ to actually yielding.
Father, for those of us uh, that have trusted Christ and are endeavoring to live for him, this still stirs us. This causes us to search our heart and investigate if there's any unclean way where we have not submitted our lives to you. And we ask today that you would purify us. But Father, there are sitting in our auditorium today in each of these services, there will be those who have not yet given their life to you. And we pray this morning, Father, that in this moment you would pierce their heart and draw them near. Father, cause them to say, I believe. Jesus, that you died, were buried, and rose again on the third day for me to take away my sins, to take my place. I believe. Father, help them to know today that they're set free. And for the backslider, the lukewarm folks that are in the room, Father, help them to be able to say with great clarity, no longer am I going to be living life my way. I give my life to you. Father, help us to be dedicated. Help it to be evident. And help the songs of Zion to be on our heart as we go from this place and into our jobs and into the highways and byways. Let it be written on our face and in our actions that we believe. Father, help us to respond, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing. And as we sing, if you feel led that you want to come up and respond, if you want to give your life to Christ and you have not, or you want to just pray and say, I'm done living for myself, you come forward and meet with me or meet with somebody else that's near you, but don't leave today without making that commitment.